It's Saturday, April 9th, 2022, and this is a highlight edition of the Steak for Breakfast podcast. Smokey, this is not Nam. This is bowling. There are rules. Today, Junior! America! Steak. For breakfast! So stand by! Happy Saturday to everybody. Hope everyone's doing well. We've got a little treat for you guys, something that was in one of our previous episodes, but we wanted to add a highlighted version of in a standalone. Um, someone who's worked in Beltway politics for over 40 years and uh, worked with the Reagan and Bush organizations uh, throughout their presidencies, in addition to being the co-founder of the Tea Party. Michael Johns joined us on a recent episode and talked about some things that are going on between Russia and Ukraine that's been a bigger narrative that... Uh, looks to highlight China. And uh, we wanted to give you more exclusive and standalone taste of that. So without further ado, we hope you enjoy. I guess we're going to hear about portions of that new world order and more as we're about to break down all things Russia and Ukraine and talk about the X factor in this whole thing. All right, joining us next on the show today, he's been involved in politics his entire life. He is a former presidential speechwriter and the co-founder of the Tea Party. Mr. Michael Johns, thanks for coming back with us today. A great pleasure to be with you guys again. Hope well, you've been well. We've been doing great. How's everything going on your end, sir? The world is on fire, <laughs> is the way I'm describing it right now. Um, hopefully that's not an overstatement. I think there's probably um, still some roads out for us, but um, I don't think really in the totality of my, my background and engagement in Foreign policy, national security, American politics, where I've seen so many things uh, in disarray and in very, very troubling ways, where you start to ask, um, you know, is it possible to recover? And I think we're at that point right now. We are definitely nearing that threshold uh, by the second, to say the least. I think we can all be in agreement there. Um, there are a lot of things going on right now, moving parts all over the world. I think everyone's kind of focused on uh, the whole Russia and Ukraine issue. How do you see it, just, a, just in brief, to, to what's really going on over there and what might be the end game? Um, there's sort of the surface-level analysis, and then there's the analysis that I think is longer-term and more troubling. Uh, you know, On the surface, I'll say what, I think you're hearing from just about anyone with, uh, you know, a, you know, an objective sense of things that Putin's aggression is uh, both illegal, inhumane, threatening, um, costing lives unnecessarily, and um, problematic on all fronts. That said. Um, this isn't the first time in the history of uh, our country where we faced a dictator who's invaded a country. And I think there's a lot of subplots behind all of this. Number one is the fact that, and maybe most troubling is the fact that as you guys know, I believe the largest threat and the most enduring threat uh, that we confront is that from China's Communist Party. And their fingerprints are all over this. Uh, it's not really being depicted in the media, but you know there was a, a meeting in Beijing, uh, February fourth, I believe, um, right, right in the Olympics, where Putin went to Beijing. And reporting on that meeting was that uh, Xi, it wasn't 
Xi Jinping saying, oh, no, don't invade this sovereign nation um, with, that with, with its you know, democratically elected government um, negotiate. It, no, he said, could you wait until the Olympics are over and then, you know, proceed, I guess. You know, so that was like the first the first issue was he literally dictated Xi Jinping literally dictated the timing of this invasion. And number two, as you clearly saw at the UN, given the opportunity for all the rhetoric about being, you know, rhetorically, you always hear from Xi Jinping and the CCP about, you know, globalism, cooperation, peace, stability, human rights. I mean, all these buzz phrases that are the biggest violators of environment, biggest violator. And, um, you know, they vote, they abstain on the vote to uh, condemn Putin's aggression. And, you know, it was the most clear-cut UN vote, really. Sometimes these are more complex. But this was simply, you know, repudiating Putin for the invasion and calling on him to withdraw his forces from Ukraine, right? Any responsible government should look at that and, you know, unless they've got some ulterior motive, which the CCP and Xi Jinping do. Yes. And, uh, and, and you know, clearly, you know, vote to, to uh, condemn Putin and, and urge him to withdraw his forces. I mean, it's, it's astounding that you've got the second largest economy, second most powerful uh, country in the world, maintaining neutrality on that. And then despite reporting, there has been assistance from China to Russia, uh, and this is, you know, part, I believe, of a much broader agenda that China had started in Afghanistan. It's been ongoing through this Belt and Road Initiative, um, you know, and, and, and they kind of use the uh, art of war Sun Tzu tactics where, you know, if they don't have to engage in military conflict, they'll avoid it. And they're beneficiaries of that because I think, you know, in the eyes of the West, you don't think of them in the way you thought of the Soviet Union or even in the way, you know, many Americans look at, at Putin. And yet, you know, as far as um, the, the human cost from China, it's extraordinary. I mean, it's, it's 70, 80, 90 million of the 100 million that we plus that we attribute to uh uh, communism in the 20th and 21st century, but it's encouraging to see that Russia is having um, some resistance. I um, think the, the the big is the big. Where do we go wrong here? I think there's kind of two areas. Number one, uh, we never should have been uh, publicly or even privately giving any assurances to Ukraine. Right. That that they had nothing to worry about in Russia or that we were going to include them in NATO. That gave them this false assurance where you're now sort of, you know, hearing the logical rebuttal, which is, where are you guys? You know, you made me all these promises. Well, we making those promises was never, it was never really Trump. It wasn't really our side of the party. It's been, um, you know, NATO, and, um, you know, and I would say Biden, um, the underlying corruption issues of Biden incorporated, including uh, his son's presence on um, Burisma board, 
Um, you know, I think it intensifies the focus on that. And then uh, the handling of the sanctions was totally illogical. And I realize this might seem like nitpicking to some Americans, but there's kind of some fundamentals in foreign policy that are not really ideologically focused. It's sort of how you go about things. And you, you know, you would always, in the case of sanctions against any country, and in the history of sanctions, which we've employed many times uh, for various reasons against countries, you would cease purchasing their largest export to us, oil, uh, before you began sanctioning their federal bank, removing them from the SWIFT system of, of the international banking system, SWIFT, and, and sanctioning their other major federal banks in ways that you know are going to undermine the ruble completely. I think it's correct that over 40%. That's hurting the people right. of the, that country, not Putin, who has still has the ability, despite being ostracized uh, globally, to move his own uh, riches around all kind, in all kinds of ways, through all kinds of currencies, through all kinds of institutions above ground and below ground. Um, so again, I question kind of like what is the objective of this administration? It was sort of, you know, so many of these things on the surface seem illogical, but you have to sort of say, yeah, by design, they are creating, and I guess now we're even talking openly and, and sort of boasting about the magnitude of uh, internal um, resistance to Putin. But the one thing we learned through regime change for the last, for all of modern times, mm -hmm. really, you know, back back to the 70s at least and, and, uh, and earlier probably, but certainly should be fresh in our mind in Iraq is uh, before you make the decision to remove any government from power, even, you know, as atrocious and autocratic and uh, human rights abusing as they may be, you better have a very clear idea as to what can come next. And that is should be very clear-cut rule applied in foreign policy. And it becomes all the more dangerous here because we're dealing with the country with the largest uh, nuclear weapons arsenal in the world, larger even than our own. Mm -hmm. And who's going who's gonna to control that? I mean, um, you know, to sort of say, well, we're going to get rid of Putin and sort of to see what happens is, is it's really just a colossal um, and irresponsible misjudgment. And so I feel like the American people, in a way, are on the receiving end now of a war that they didn't ask for, that Congress still is not authorized. But in 21st century, when you undermine a country's currency, to the point where people are rapidly trying to, you know, get withdrawals. The government, you know, Putin, Putin in turn put limits on those withdrawals, um, and and you're and they're now suffering, you know, unable to meet basic obligations. You know, you've you you have created a um, a situation of domestic turmoil, and uh, I'm not hearing anything out of Biden or Blinken or any of these um, guys that are taking us down, I believe this global reset, saying that that wasn't the intent. It appears it was, it appears that it is and was the intent. 
and that opens all the concerns also about China's potential engagement in this area. I think you're going to see the CCP sort of try to rescue Putin in some ways. And um, these guys sort of function like the mob. You know, yeah. they, they love to see governments that are having problems and might need some protection, you know. And um, so that's kind of where I see things right now. And, the, you know, the cost of human life seems extraordinary. Um, you know, there's other concerns that aren't – there's so many concerns, I think, that are not getting attention. But when you have innocent people – dead, as you do in the case of Ukrainian citizens, it's very tough sometimes to get those messages across or to get them across in a way that you don't seem callously oblivious to the human cost. The human cost obviously is extraordinary and it's, you know, uh, I think pretty clear the world has um, turned on Putin and, um, and that of course has created uh, and, and driven him in a way closer probably the Xi Jinping even now than he was back in early February when they had that meeting in Beijing. Yeah, those are some excellent points you make to kind of lead in. I wanted to ask you, now I'm going to kind of break down your opening with, with some of the things that I just wrote down notes-wise in regards to that. So let's go back to how this whole thing started. What's your feelings, on, and, and, and do you think they were too out of bounds when you look at, like, let's just say a NATO map from the late 90s up until modern time today what's what's going on with with nato and how they've been expanding and and, and kind of forming that alliance moving it uh more east and in, in, into europe do you think putin's demands originally were kind of out of bounds in regards to you know no nato no eu um recognize crimea as part of the uh republic of russia and then well, i don't even think i don't think he said no nato i think he said no nato expansion right you know i mean i, I you know which is Kind of getting at where you're going is, um, with again, without making any apologies for Putin, who has you know ruthlessly abused human rights, sure. been engaged in criminal activities, is corrupt to the core, up to his neck, and and now is is taking the lives of, of innocents in Ukraine. Um, it would be the equivalent of, say, Putin announcing that, you know, he had formulated a military alliance with Mexico. Um, you can imagine how we would respond to that. We yes. would be really rhetorically, we would even be concerned about it. And then, of course, if it came to manifest in practical reality, you know, it, it, we would put, we'd be taking some action. Um, and... <laughs> And then, of course, the negotiations that are ongoing, and you look at what Putin is asking for, it's not unrealistic. Right. I mean, um, or unreasonable. Uh, so I'd like to, you know, that's kind of where our focus should be on right now. Instead, you just hear these war hawks, um, MSNBC, CNN, going crazy. I mean, this is to them, you know, um, just, you know, an opportunity, I think, to deflect from the other crises that are immense and and, and arguably more threatening than, than Ukraine is to this country um, and to distract and, and save Biden politically, who, you know, continues to descend and collapse, crash and burn, really. 
Yeah, he can't seem to string two sentences together, more or less like uh, project a strong foreign policy or, or, you know, represent the United States as a world leader on the global stage. And we've seen that repeatedly, even saw it all the way up, you know, yesterday, instead of talking about how anything to do with this country is going to be like a positive or driving force in this narrative or in the region over there. He's talking about how, you know, things going on domestically are like the threats to progressive new world order and the green new deal and stuff like that, which is just absolutely not the direction that this country wants to get into, you know, that real life scenario you talked well, about. Have to spe- and you have to speculate about whether that is the real agenda. The origin. Yep. Cause I want to tell you, having been engaged, in, you know, in the Soviet union times, I can tell you American liberals um, were not ones willing to confront the former Soviet union. In fact, you know, championed the Reagan doctrine when I was making the arguments for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, their their argument was that that was you know unnecessarily uh, provocative, and that it was you know really endangering and risking nuclear war. Of course, you know my argument was the exact opposite: that we, without engaging American military troops, were supporting people that were you know reversing the um, the. the communist expansion at the time and that that was the best hope for a peaceful end of the cold war and that proved correct so they don't have any history of this like where did this obsession come from i don't recall during crimea in 2014 when biden's complete um weakness and and his transparent selfishness really in that relationship you know you can recall that uh, a lot more flexibility um, you know, after the election, as he told the foreign minister at the right. time. Yeah, I mean, there's just no sign of strength. And of course, it, it, as a result of that, you know, they moved on and successfully seized Crimea. He provided, but um, Obama provided no lethal aid to um, Ukraine. And I think, and I've made this argument since um, Putin first invaded Ukraine, that you see two administrations here who've completely mismanaged uh, Russia in Obama and Hillary Clinton as Secretary of State and um, and and Biden and Blinken you know, doing it completely wrongly. And then you contrast it with the fact that this threat and the desire to kind of bring back together some or even all of the former Soviet Union by Putin is not a new one. It's one he held the last four years during Trump, but he yep. didn't execute on it because Trump was very sophisticated in the way he handled Russia policy. And uh, I understand that may be troubling, problematic, and jaw-dropping to those on the left who, who somehow still oddly accuse him of being too close to him. But, you know, Biden, no lethal aid to Ukraine until now. Obama, no lethal aid to Ukraine. Trump provided lethal aid to Ukraine and then simultaneously backed off rhetorically, uh, you know, in support of a dip of the diplomacy in the relationship, this idea of expanding NATO into Ukraine, which is unbelievably provocative. And, you know, even a, any leader, of, of Russia, even one that was more benign than uh, Putin, would find that immensely problematic. Um, so there's some things here that we've seen transpire over the last few months 
I, I mean, I thought it started in early July with this irrational uh, abandonment of, of Bagram Air Base in yes. Afghanistan. We're literally, um, the Afghan military woke up the next day and asked, where are the Americans at? <laughs> you know, we left all this equipment behind. We left in the middle of the night. We shut the electricity off. And we left unguarded uh, the highest security prison in Afghanistan that was housing over 1,000 of the most dangerous criminals, mostly terrorists, in um, that country. These self-sabotaging initiatives. And then in the leading up to um, the, um, you know, so, so obviously Putin had these troops, you know, what a hundred thousand at one point went up to one hundred ninety thousand, but he had them he had them on that border all the way back into the spring. I can recall speaking with European media about that issue. This was there was nothing new about this, but his res- response, even diplomatically back months, was completely again by textbook definition on the way you handle these things the wrong approach. He sent you know he sent high level delegations over. Uh, negotiated with no preconditions, you know, the first step you take, and I'm sure this is probably one that Trump almost certainly would have taken, would have been, sure, we'll talk with you. But the first thing you do is you back 100,000 troops off this sovereign country's border. Because the only reason you put 100,000 troops on a sovereign country's border is you have in the back of your mind a possible intent of invading it. Right. There was no, I mean, they, they weren't there for defensive purposes. There was no there was no offensive threat being presented to Russia's sovereignty um, by Ukraine. No, there wasn't. And, and the final final point never got any attention was was you know we're getting a lot of now uh, you know so 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 on the surface you know those who you know maybe aren't all that sophisticated in, in the foreign policy area <laughs> but and and aren't helped by the the media's kind of surface level coverage of this. Uh, this all of this praise for Ukraine and the way they've happened, but honestly, I mean, they've so it's just you've, you've had a complete um, suppression, really, of all domestic political opposition and media. So, okay, mm-hmm. the political parties um, that you know that were um, functioning there beforehand, um, you have Zelensky basically outlaws all of them i believe it's well over 10 yep and then the media have been the media are completely state controlled and had now been unified under one um one media outlet controlled by the state so you sort of this this idea that hey here's this you know just ideal jeffersonian democracy being invaded (laughs) by you know um the nazi germany of the 21st century the former part of that, at least, is kind of questionable. Ukraine's um, ranking on, on on this global corruption scale is actually higher than Russia's. Yes, it is. And Russia is one of the most corrupt countries in the world. Yep. So you got a corrupt country, um, and and now a leadership whose response has been a complete su- suppression of all of the the principles in theory that. Um, we're there to protect this idea that even if Ukraine falls, that Putin somehow is going to be able to move beyond there in a way that is you know, that would represent a World War III. It seems to me to be very um, questionable, I think, from the standpoint of at least what we're seeing out of the Red Army 
And um, you know, I hate to say it, but it's like you know they haven't really been in a conflict since a major conflict since sort of what they did in Syria and and before that in a more major way in Afghanistan and. Uh, their, their communications. You're seeing what over well over half a dozen generals have yep. been killed. When I think back about the Soviet occupation of Afghanistan, what ultimately led them to conclude that they needed to get out in 1989, they in 1979, even in 89, um, it, it was the, all of the domestic opposition that arose from these families who lost loved ones um, in this strange foreign country in, you know, the, where, where their presence seemingly made not a lot of sense. And so I do think, you're gonna, you know, from the standpoint of Russian sentiment, this idea that somehow if, if Putin's thinking he's going to draw on some sort of level of Russian nationalism, that might be true in the older generation, you know, uh, who, you know, lived most of their lives during the Cold War. But for those under 40 in Russia or 30, um, those aspirations don't exist. Sure. And, oh, and, that's a... and this is going to have an immensely detrimental effect, I believe, on domestic political standing. And like I said, you might say, well, that's great, right? We hate Putin and Putin now Putin's up. Well, no, you know, because you, you, you now there's blood in the water sort of. And you've got a very sophisticated military and intelligence apparatus and other forces in uh, Russia that um, that may indeed see an opportunity to move on Putin. And um, you know, what is that going to actually be? Or what's it going to mean? Uh, you know, we took out Saddam and got ISIS. We took out the, the uh, Shah of Iran and got the Ayatollah. Uh, I could give you a whole bunch of other examples where, Libya. you know, the, where, yeah, where you have kind of the beginning of these aspirations that seem reasonable and laudable and, you know, and then it's sort of the realpolitik ramifications of them end up being enormously uh, detrimental and, and even costly. Uh, so I feel like we're being sort of, attempted to being brought into a war, I think this is totally preventable. And the assurances that have been given by, you know, essentially this, you know, by Europe and by by um, many of those behind the globalist agenda to Ukraine were completely irresponsible. Uh, since there was, you, you would afford, be able to foretell that we would end up exactly where we were. You know, and uh, they can talk in no-fly zones and things like that. We all know, you know, at least in, a, in governmental circles or in national security circles, everyone knows what that means. That's war. But I would contend that even these sanctions that are almost unprecedented in severity and are, de- and are designed to, un- to really decimate the national currency of the country, yeah. uh, and it's being decimated, are also war against those people. And when you, you know, it's kind of a physics you know, uh, action reaction scenario where you you take an act like that, it's almost uh, inconceivable that you're not going to be on the receiving end of some response. I mean, you're going to throw a big punch, someone's going to come back at you. And I'm almost pleasantly surprised that we haven't seen more in the way of um, 
retaliation you, you think know, from Russia on this. So, again, some excellent points that you made there. It's the weak leadership, the awful policies, and the ones that aren't directly affecting the ones who they're telling you in the news they are, oh, yeah, we're doing all this stuff to Putin, but, you know, it's the Russian people, it's the American people that are getting hurt most by this. You had issues like, you know, you brought up some of those countries. A lot of people need to think back, like, what was the way the country, the United States, Michael, reacted during the Cuban Missile Crisis when Russia was was cuddling up to, you know, someone a few hundred miles off of the coast of Miami and, and planning on, you know, installing nuclear facilities complete with missiles over there. Uh, it, it kind of represents some of the same red flags that Russia raised in regards to Ukraine maybe joining NATO and, and, and you know, having that Article 5 trigger. You know, if let's just say they decided to turn into, instead of a defensive offensive and and there, there's a lot of different ways to look at it so I, I just think it's a lot of uh intangibles to break down and you kind of gave us a good start of of where we need to at least be looking from both sides of the coin now now i know china is the huge underlying presence here what are we looking at as far as xi jinping when he sees all this you already mentioned afghanistan listen as soon as our troops were rolling out there was a lot of uh chinese military and and tech guys rolling into bagram air, air force base and setting up camp there we all know that for sure and, and and you know probably deconstructing american technology and whatever else they can get their hands on over there in addition to gaining one of the most strategic air bases in the world. Um, and, and now you said him and Xi Jinping and, and Putin have met. Yep. Putin kind of adhered to wait until the Olympics were over. By the way, 38 times. 38 times they've met. Yeah. Um, you know, which is a sign to the longevity that both of them have had. I mean, it's, you know, there, we condemn dictatorships, and um, I condemn dictatorships. But one thing is that, and I've come to sort of realize this more than I used to when we would describe that political system as being detrimental and, and sort of self-undermining. In a way, you look at the benefits that say, Xi Jinping especially has is that they make a decision. They can move on it. They're not sitting around having to defend themselves in congressional hearings or argue with you know, political <laughs> opponents. Um, you know, somebody gets in the way, they disappear. Uh, this is, this is a, 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 I don't want even to say a totalitarian regime. This is a criminal uh, um, enterprise in China. They function and operate like a mafia would, but with vastly greater resources. And the problem, which goes back all the way to Kissinger's perception, and I would say beneath him, Winston Lord, who I knew and actually spoke with about this in the late 80s, you know, because even, you know, when I was starting out, it made no sense handing over Hong Kong, you know, to a a communist regime um, and the neglect we had of the Tibet situation. And even then, the deficits were running up. Yeah. um, That were... Uh, that began the hollowing out of the American manufacturing industry. This regime has been engaged, you know, in, uh, if you define war as having multiple components and the kinetic war is only part of it. It's the one that's the most, you know, visual, it's the most understandable. It's the one people first think of, but, you look at the magnitude of cybercrime, you look at the magnitude of disinformation, you look at the lies, 
you look at the economic cheating, the intellectual property theft, the outright criminal uh, undertakings that are part of the Revenue Foundation, including fentanyl trafficking, which they control 95% of the uh, human organ transplant yes. um, program, which brings in billions of dollars. Uh, they don't even, by the way, um, utilize anesthesia any longer on these Uyghurs. You know, somebody shows up, needs a lung, a heart, a kidney. They just take these guys and carve it out of them. Mm. That's crazy. Not only that, but... Which is, which is astonishing that, to think now that you look at, say, this Iran, the ongoing negotiations on Iran, that we would ever turn to a Putin or a Xi Jinping to help mediate that situation that is so closely attached to the security interests of the United States, <laughs> yeah. of Israel, and of the, the countries that have traditionally been closest to us in the Arab world with... Uh, Saudi Arabia, UAE, and and you can see, frankly, especially in Saudi Arabia's case, how you know they're just sort of giving up. I mean, um, this you know they they've cooperated with us in major ways um, all the way back into the Cold War with the support of the Mujahideen and yep. and, uh, and and have have. You've been engaged in, in helping us on the Zoran threat, and now you're looking at announcements that they might completely drop the dollar as their foreign reserve currency, um, and they acquired the uh, Russian anti-defense system, as I believe Turkey did, Um which, which is really, you know, from an intelligence standpoint, is problematic because it gives them access to our fighter jets and, you know, particularly the stealth na- nature of the technology that we have in our air capabilities. I see, you know, the, the biggest threat right now is the fact that, I, that I'd always felt assured, reassured, that, you know, as, as dangerous as I knew the, China, the Chinese Communist Party and Xi Jinping were, as aggressive as I know that they are, I always say, well, who are the real allies? You know, at the end of the day, we have friends all over the world, you know, who are with us because they value the strategic relationship or they share our values or they admire us or we've helped them in the past. Who, who I, And I, this is like an argument I made in, Recently, a year ago, I'm like, you know, who, well, who's China's biggest ally? You know, I mean, it's like they have these um, Belt and Road Initiative relationships that are death traps that they've cultivated, uh, where dictators get rich and you know the countries lose like strategic assets. But, but you know, on, a, on an ideological level, none. Well, that's now, you know, today, I you sort of have to retract that and say, no, hold up, the biggest shift geopolitically over the last year has been that, that China has gone from, yeah, being pretty much alone and isolated, though a big, obviously 1.4 billion, the most populated country in the world, uh, and the second largest economy, to having now this uh, newfound relationship with the Mullahs in Iran, um, clearly complete control, in my view, over North Korea, including their nuclear weapons program. I don't believe there's much autonomy going on in Pyongyang right now as far as what they do there. 
and um, and now, of course, with um, Pakistan and with um, um, with the um, with Ukraine, if it falls, yep. potentially, um, and and Afghanistan, which you know, I mean, they've they're aware of the political sensitivities of rushing in and embracing the Taliban, but I'm not under, we should be under no illusions. These are the situations that they love to see, which are, you know, governments that are struggling either economically, politically, uh, or developmentally. And unlike the United States, which for, you know, since the cold war, we just sort of poured money into countries with the best of intentions, hoping that our foreign aid would help their development, they moved in with these, uh, you know, sort of secure debt relationships. And, you know, you just saw in the case of Sri Lanka, I think yep. Djibouti and um, Horn of Africa is another example, where, where literally entire, the, the entire ports now of Sri Lanka, you know, a few hundred miles from India, which is a, which is an important relationship for the United States and you know there's no love of uh, Xi Jinping and, and the CCP in India that they, they they have secured this I mean they put them in a hold they went in there this is the best example and there's, there's many of these examples but just think about this they go into Sri Lanka they deal with this corrupt head of state uh, who gets paid off to you know build this port facility Right, runs up huge amounts of, of debt, you know, telling the people, well, we'll get this, you know, we'll earn it back once the port's up and functioning. The port itself is constructed pretty inartfully and um, not functionally. And it loses huge amounts of money. Mm-hmm. I and mean, a few years ago, there were like a, like a dozen ships in the entire year that stopped there, you know, so it, it was never functional. It was set up to fail. They couldn't make the debt payments on it. And, you know, China could have renegotiated those in more favorable terms. But, you know, under the relationship they had, it was, you know, uh, a, uh, you know, kind of a, a, a debt equity swap where they move in and they've secured this thing. And now there's obvious ability for them to put PLA or other uh, Chinese military um assets you know into this area yeah very strategic it's uh you have to see you have to i continually find myself amazed at and you know in this bizarre way impressed with the magnitude of strategic thinking that china's communist party has brought since 2000 really since xi jinping in 2012 and this Belt and Road Initiative, yes. it was, I think the next year, 2013. This is his signature initiative. It And it's part of the, and when they make it an initiative, I mean, they literally made it part of the Constitution, mm-hmm. right? So it becomes like a legal obligation for the entire government to execute on it. It's not one of these um, build back better things no. where we kind of do what we can do and then. You know, even what we put forward is not really as advertised. You can see the seriousness of this whole thing and of this man. And I'm starting to see the pieces of this plan that I, I've known we've been confronting come together. 
uh, which you know really is only happening because we have Biden and because um, you know in my view they probably have played a very significant role in Biden's ascent. Sure, one hundred percent politically here. Yeah, I definitely can agree with that. I think one of the things a lot of people don't understand, too, we kind of harp on it on the show, but in hard numbers, if you just look at how much of an influence China has just over the economy here in the United States, you're talking half a trillion dollars annually of our economy is Chinese goods. We we have built this country, okay? I mean, everything, you know, so the second largest economy in the world, um, which, you know, in some measurements is the largest yeah, uh, not on not on the traditional one that we use GDP. They're still second, but you look, you know, even on this this trade deficit, where you know this entire system was set up from the beginning of our trade relationship, and then through their admittance in the World Trade Organization, um, it was designed to alter the. Um, the balance of, of manufacturing and, and productivity uh, where we were consumers and beneficiaries of cheaper goods, but they stole the whole industries. And this is sort of not disparaging Walmart, but it's kind of like the Walmart scenario where Walmart moves into a, a community originally when they were building out and you would, you'd have a lot of concern in the community. They would say, hold on a second, we have these mom and pop stores. How are they going to compete? You know, economies of scale and and the and, you know, cost of productivity. And you're just going to be able to come in and you're going to undercut all of them. They're going to be out of business in six months. Um, and then you're going to raise your prices anyway after you put the competition out of business. And that's, in essence, kind of what's transpiring here is that we have lost key uh, industries not just the obvious ones in, in heavy manufacturing where, you know, entire lives and families have been destroyed throughout this country by China's policies. But, but you know, as we've experienced this pandemic, even things like pharmaceuticals or, or generics or over-the-counter medications or even national security uh, parts utilized in our national security it this and the supply chain generally this idea we should the position right now which you're not going to get out of this administration but it's got to be one that we begin to rally around has got to be a rational decoupling completely with uh china's communist party yep absolutely and um and i mean i mean literally um the problems that we have are extraordinary and they've played it brilliantly. I mean, um, you, you look at the situation with, um, say Apple when they moved over there, you know, and, 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 and Apple puts a few hundred billion dollars into the purported economic development of China in exchange for favored regulatory, um, conditions. There's been these situations multiplied, 10,000 times over Mm -hmm. where um, they're just utterly unfair. You know, one of them has been that you cannot go over there and manufacture anything, which is what you go over there to do um, without showing them entirely how and releasing to them all of the plans on how something is 
manufacturer, and I actually I actually had some first person experience with this with a medical device company, where um, you know there was a lot of pressure to reduce the cost of manufacturing from a you know Southern New Jersey based um, company and, and labor costs and insurance costs, and the regulatory costs, and you know to sort of explore options. And um, you go over there and give them any product. You just hand them any, like look around your room and look at anything and say, hey, make this exactly like this. They're exceptional at that. On an innovation basis, they're, they're doing some things that are reasonably impressive, but they don't, they're no match to us on that. What, so this is an economy, like I said, it's been built by, by theft, by criminal enterprises, and by these unfair trade relationships that we frankly need to take responsibility for. And, and, and I'll tell you just one story. I don't know if I mentioned this last time we talked, but sure. I'm, I'm now distinctly remembering a National Endowment for Democracy meeting that I was at late 80s and Winston Ward, who was sort of you know, at the Kissinger meeting with Mao um, and, and Nixon. Um, and one of you know was a was an ambassador over there. I'm like, oh, and I get confronted them. You know, I was in my 20s, and I had that kind of, I think, ability then to be um, perceived as, inqu- you know, where these questions were more inquisitive as opposed to combative. Even though I had my mind made up then, <laughs> I'm like, what are we do? What are we doing here? I mean, why are we why are we empowering this communist regime? And that was in theory that that point with my, you know, overall the general perception that. Communism was a bad thing. And his response, which you would have heard and you would still hear in a lot of corners, is that a growing economy in China was in our interests, that we would see the middle class rise and that they would be less tolerant of these human rights abuses and and the the government of, of China would feel more of an obligation to assimilate into the global economy and, and the so-called rules-based order that you keep hearing out of Blinken um, and, and be, you know, basically maybe never allies, but, you know, responsible citizens of the world. And that has turned out, in my view, to be the biggest lie, really, in the history of uh, American foreign policy and national secure, security, followed closely by the um, the misguided uh, statements or outright deceptions we received on Iraq's uh, nuclear capabilities. Those two issues have been, um, have really changed this world in, in dramatic ways. Hmm. Definitely uh, some interesting angles to look at it from and things that uh, down the road, we'll be looking to unpack more with you as this situation continues to develop as uh, you know, we've already decided that you're going to be a, uh, reoccurring guest on the show and beyond more frequently as uh, we're moving forward now. Cause we really like not only hearing your narrative, but just how well-versed you are in everything. It's not like, you know, everybody has their opinion and uh, you know, you'll, you'll unpack something with both sides of, of, of the issue completely before you say, well, you know, the way I look at it as, and then give a little opinion on it, but it doesn't mean anything because you've kind of already laid out the facts, which I think at least to the listenership is probably the most important thing. Yeah, I wish we had more of that, and I consciously made this decision a long time ago that my allegiance was first and foremost to accuracy yeah. and to presenting things objectively. And you know, it's many pressures that have existed, you know, even in 
the conservative circles or on the right that didn't seem realistically or were not realistically accurate that I have not bought into and and things that I've jumped into right away when I've seen that they made sense and they were unpopular. Um, you know, the Reagan doctrine wasn't particularly popular. My day one support for Trump, undeniably, was not popular. Um, you, I, you know, got a lot of condemnation on our side. You know, you don't get a lot of support on our side, but you know, when you say these things that are somehow threatening to the established way of doing things, um, that's problematic. And we're at a moment right now where our side, and by that I don't even just mean conservatives, but I mean centrists. Yeah. Anyone who sort of looks at, at, at looks at everything Biden's doing, and it, which is now a, a huge wine share of the country, and feels we're moving in the wrong direction. You know, creative thinking and critical thinking is a good is a good thing. And and just the final point on this: we have no accountability on any of these things. Nope. You know, in the private sector. You, you know, if you were a CEO and you put up like three consecutive quarters of losses and the board lost confidence, I mean, just be replaced. And then go get somebody else. Your strategic vision isn't working. Your execution implementation isn't working. What? Why is it with even more at stake than an individual company with the, literally the future of the world and the future of every American on the line that we tolerate these failures on our side? There needs to be accountability. We've had billions of dollars that have flooded into the conservative movement since basically the early Reagan years, uh, designed to prevent a lot of these things from happening. And the system and the way it's structured has been sort of self-corrupting. These individuals within it that we have felt would have our back in, in the event that a real crisis emerged have not. They've not even emerged with with strongly worded condemnations on the biggest issues of the last year and a half. Uh, on the pandemic, on November three, on January six, on any of these things, which you know, to me, is an indication that you've a broken process, a broken movement, and a leadership crisis. And you know, that's not something that I like to say, or I. Uh, feel is, you know, I know it's probably not endearing if you're part of that and you're on the receiving end of it, sure. but I don't think anyone on the receiving end of it, if they really thought about it, would deny it. You have to look. We've lost every major institution of civil society in this country mm-hmm. um, over the last few decades. Who's been held accountable? You know, who do we, it, it's, it's still like, it's like a joke. We, you know, we lose we, and you know, the people responsible make fun of the other side and say, you know, absurd, but they're winning. Yeah. Okay. And they don't really care. They don't care about the condemnations. They're long ago, they became oblivious to it. So you're not evening the score. And uh, I realize we're set up to do well in November, but, you know, we do well in November with, you know, a free and fair and objective election process and the steps that already should have been taken have not been taken. In fact, they've been met with resistance, including by Republican establishment figures, and that is immensely problematic. So, you know, it's time to really look at the whole, all the pieces on the board 
and 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 reposition them in a way that makes strategic sense because I just laid out how I think we're up against a foreign enemy that is in, immensely strategic and understands this country and the way it works better than most Americans even do. Sure, they've been they've been uh, you know infecting themselves into every facet of everything for whether it be the education system, big business, big tech, government. You know, capture. Yep. Elite capture. Yep. You know, they, they, there's so many components of this program, but that was one of the one of the most successful. And why we're in this situation is that they long ago looked at they said, well, who's really influencing American society? Well, it's, ac- it's academia, it's it's Fortune 500 business, it's 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 think tanks, um, it's it's media, and they've moved in and they have cultivated very amicable and in some cases uh, commercially profitable relationships with these institutions to the point where literally our own, our own NIH and CDC are corrupted by it. By <laughs> yeah, that. to say the least. It's pretty mm-hmm. It's pretty amazing to see. Michael, this has been awesome. Obviously, we're going to be having you back soon. Why don't you tell our listenership where they could find you across social medias? Yeah, I'm uh, pretty much on everything. Uh, on Twitter, uh, Mike at Michael Johns, my name, one word, um, on Facebook, Michael Johns Tea Party, and uh, YouTube, Michael Johns, and all the emerging conservative-friendly sites, which I guess we'll see how those play out. There's still a very, very small fraction of the total universe of social media, right? usually under my, my name, um, one word, Michael Johns. Perfect. We'll live link him in the show description today. And like I said, we'll be looking forward to having you back. This is the former presidential speechwriter and co-founder of the Tea Party, Mr. Michael Johns. Thanks for joining us today on Steak for Breakfast. Thank you, guys. Have a good one. Take care.